We, uh, you know, this is uh, Father's Day. I don't know if you know that. Uh, it's Father's Day. We've just been rehearsing how good of a father we have, spiritually speaking. Um, and we out in the lobby have this thing set up. It's not for you guys because, guys, you, you hate these things, but your wives will make you go out and get a picture on Father's Day there in front of the dad sign. Uh, I did that with my family. You can take a look. Uh, it's really kind of cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to stress the fact this is Father's Day, but my wife is up in Montana with her sister. It's not Sister's Day. All my kids are gone. Not one of them's here. Uh, but you know, I do not hold a grudge. Um, but anyway, there it is. Yeah, my celebration of Father's Day. Yeah, yeah I'm the man. Yeah, there we go. So... Uh, we can cut to the, you know, the other slide. Thank you. That's too depressing. So let's, uh, let's pray as we dive in this morning. Father, it is, uh, it is good to gather together to worship you and to remember what kind of father you are. Uh, it is good, God, to also give thanks for the fathers we have. And, uh, and it is good, Father, to ask you to be our teacher this morning as we look at your word and challenge us let, us, let us grow. God, when we come together like this to worship, we really want to be intentional and want to hear from you. We want to leave differently than when we came, and we would ask you to do that in us this morning. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, the one that makes all of this possible. Amen. Uh, so this is the day when families recognize and honor their dads across the land. And of course, being a dad, like being a mom, is pretty tough work. It can be hard at times. Uh, it's full of challenges. Uh, it can be full of uh, difficulties, even confusing moments. You know, how do I parent as a dad in this situation? Um, and yet, too, it is also a time uh, the whole parenting thing and fathering thing is full of joy. It's full of satisfaction. Helping raise kids, watching them grow, getting to speak into their lives and impact and change and have some uh, contribution to the development of their character. And it's stuff like that that really matters. That's very, very significant. Uh, if I were to describe the whole Christian fathering thing and what it's about, I think I would say more than anything else, it's just about honoring God. I mean, that's one way of phrasing this. Learning to respond in faith to life's interesting twists and turns. Uh, life's blessings and disappointments, life's surprises. Being a good dad uh, is mainly about guiding our families and even guiding ourselves into a place that is honoring to God, showing others what it looks like to live a life of real faith. And by that, of course, we don't mean, you know, super duper faith or something or, you know, sinless faith or extraordinary faith, just faith that consistently endeavors to honor God. It occurs to me that uh, David, the guy who we watch in scripture move from being a, a shepherd to being the king of Israel was that kind of man. He was somebody who bottom line wanted very, very much to honor God. Uh, he certainly uh, didn't do that perfectly. If you know anything about the life of David, and most people do, he's one of the most well-known characters in the Bible. Uh, his resume included things like adultery and murder, you know, that was in there. But when confronted with those sins, instead of denying them or instead of dismissing them as, hey, I'm the king, you know, you can't talk to me. 
He actually repented when he was confronted with those sins. He honored God. He was humbled in those circumstances because of his sin. Uh, He didn't power up. He didn't pretend that he was always right or that what he said was the law or that he was above the law. You know, around this place, you do what I say, not what I do kind of a thing. Admittedly, David uh, was somebody who, when he wrestled with his sin, he wrestled honestly with it and humbly with it. Uh, Also, David was a complicated man. Some people have called him a Renaissance man in hindsight. You know, he was a soldier. He was a general. He was a poet. He was a writer. He was a musician. Uh, He was an architect. He was a chief of state. He was a prophet. And of course, he was a father too. And he seems to have had a good relationship with some of his kids, uh, like Solomon, for example, Uh, a not so good relationship with others like uh, Absalom. David was a man with some pretty spectacular successes and some pretty spectacular failures. And so this morning, I thought we'd take a break in our series from Moses, and we would just kind of look over the life of David together. Is that okay? It's got to be. It's all I've got. So, you know, (laughs) but I thought I'd ask. You know, without question, David is one of the most well-known characters of the Bible and probably well-liked, perhaps because he just is so human. Uh, He is so down to earth. He is kind of raw, kind of real, while at the same time, he is also very passionate about God. We have a very up-close look at the life of David as we read the Bible. We see him first as a somewhat shy shepherd boy. That's kind of where we meet him at first. He's the youngest, actually, of eight brothers. Imagine that. This is a big family. Eight brothers he's got. And it's it's funny, when you read the story of his life, Uh, David's dad, Jesse, uh, leaves David out in the fields tending sheep while he takes the seven older brothers to go meet the prophet Samuel, if you recall. Samuel's actually looking to anoint a new king over Israel because it hasn't gone so well with Saul. Now, Saul is still the king, but behind the scenes, Samuel is anointing a new king, somebody who's going to replace Saul. And uh, so Jesse brings his sons. He's been instructed to be there at this meal where Samuel's going to anoint a king. Brings the seven oldest sons. David's out in the field, parades his sons in front of Samuel. And these guys are tall. They're good looking, especially Eliab, the oldest son. And uh, this is when God says to Samuel that famous thing. He says, do not consider his appearance or his height because if it had been up to Samuel, uh, he would have been uh, anointing Eliab. But uh, it says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Wow, that's that's a pretty profound statement. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And if you know the story, of course, David is eventually chosen to be king by God and therefore anointed by Samuel, and he will be the next king in Israel eventually. Uh, And before you know it, really from this point on in David's life, he starts this meteoric rise to national stardom. Uh, He's no longer a shepherd. In fact, he becomes a personal attendant to the king, King Saul, plays music for him, calms him down, ministers to him, and so. Uh, He also does military service with tremendous success. Uh, There's a turning point that comes when Saul's affections for or appreciation of David turns and he starts to view David as a rival, which is true, actually, and he starts to try to kill David and David becomes a fugitive from Saul and he even becomes an illegal alien living in the land of the Philistines for a time. 
Now, of course, eventually he does become king when uh, Saul dies. Now, many years later, when David is king, we bump into that shameful conduct with Bathsheba, uh, his adultery with her, the pregnancy that ensues, then David's scheming and conniving to get uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed in the battle or in a battle. Uh, We see, too, uh, his mistakes in parenting. His son Absalom kind of resents David uh, for a variety of reasons, even rebels against David at one point, eventually pulls the kingdom away from David for a short time. All of this, of course, is heartbreaking, uh, as it would be to any dad, any father, uh, and it breaks David's heart. We see, too, uh, another occasion in David's life, some arrogance when he orders the troops to be numbered. He takes a census that he's not supposed to take. Uh, We see so many different sides of David. It's like looking at his life under a microscope, really. Uh, And we get to see both the character that's there, because there is a great deal of character and passion for God, but there's a lot of crud, too. And you get to see both. And kind of because of this, it's easy to like David. It's easy to relate to David. And probably the thing I think I like best about David is this, this under underlying desire we see in David's life to just plain honor God. It's his passion. He gets it wrong a lot of the times, but it is his passion to want to honor God, to praise God, to give God glory, even after major failures in his life and major setbacks. When he sins with Bathsheba, of course, they they conceive a child and that child is born. And and, uh, when this child is stricken with illness, David falls on his face, if you remember the story, and he repents for seven days and seven nights. He's begging God to heal this child, to give this child his life. But when the son dies, God doesn't answer David's prayer the way David wants it to be answered. What does David do? I mean, does he shake his fist at God? Does he say, God, how could you do this? That's it for me. No more following you. You know, you're wrong, God. It's actually, he responds in just the opposite way. He gets up, he cleans himself up, and he goes immediately to the temple, and he worships God. And uh, he acknowledges his own sin in this whole affair, no pun intended, and he acknowledges God's righteousness in it and God's goodness. And he writes about this later. This is what he says. He says, uh, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he's not saying he didn't sin against Uriah, but what he's he's acknowledging is, is the real breakdown here. The root of the problem with David is he wasn't honoring God when he should have been and how he should have been at critical moments. And that's what he's really getting at. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Wow. I read that and I step back from it, reflect on it a bit, and I think, you know, David, David is a guy who gets it. I mean, he owns his own stuff. Even in the midst of hardship, he's honoring God. You know, there's another time uh, David sins when he's numbering the troops of Israel. I referred to that just a moment ago, that census. And he's trying to determine his own military strength. Uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, assessing your, your value. Well, this is David's a king. He's assessing his value. He's, he's taking a census. He wants to know what his armies, the size of his armies are. And God punishes David and the people of Israel for sins that actually aren't explained to us. And uh, this punishment comes in the form of a plague. And when the plague is nearly over, David wants to make a worship offering to the Lord. He's acknowledging, yeah, once again, I've sinned. I blew it. 
God, I want to worship you. So he goes to the place that God stipulates. It's the threshing floor of a man who lives there in the city of Jerusalem. It's where the temple is actually one day going to be built. Uh, and when that man, uh, Aruna, sees David, the king coming, he runs out to David and he greets him and he tells David, uh, or David tells Aruna, he says, I've come here to make a worship offering to God. I want to buy your land, he tells him. And the man says back to David, kind of what you would expect somebody to say to a king, hey, the land is yours. You, you can use it however you want. It's yours. The, my field is yours. My oxen are yours. You can use the yoke on their necks for the wood, for the sacrifice. And do you remember how David responded in that situation? David says, no, uh, I insist on paying you for it, he says. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen, paid 50 shekels, uh, a fair sum for the silver, uh, shekels of silver for them. He could have had it all for free. I mean, it was being offered as a gift, but instead he buys it. He knows that his worship is only meaningful if it costs him something, if it comes from his resources, in this case, his wealth, his possessions. He, I, I see stuff like this in David's life, and I have to admit, it challenges me. In fact, it, it humbles me. I wonder if I would have paid for the land and the auction, if I would have said, gee, thanks, you know, and go ahead and make the offering. I hope I would. I hope I would have paid for it. But the point is this, David really wanted the trajectory of his life to be about honoring God. There's another example of this in 1 Chronicles 17. He finds himself now sitting in a, a beautiful paneled palace, right? Splendor, luxury, it's kind of a showcase to the other nations around them. It occurs to him that the ark of God is sitting in a, a tent, you know, not a palace, just a, a small little tent actually. And David feels bad about this. And he says, God, let me build you a temple, you know, one worthy of who you are and one that would show and reflect praise to you. Let me put your ark in the temple, he says. And God says, David, you're a warrior king. You've shed a lot of blood. I'm going to let your son do this, but, but not you. <laughs> I, and I read that and I think, you know, wow, interesting. What's David's response? Is it, well, excuse me. You know, I'm not good enough for you, God. Fine. I didn't want to do it anyway. You know, something like that. But that's, of course, not at all David's response. In fact, he's very humble in this. He receives this and, and uh, he essentially says, well, okay, then let me amass materials for the building of the temple so that when my son gets the ultimate privilege of building a home, Lord, for you, you know, I will have had some role in it. I, I can give of my wealth and I can put things together that will help my son do uh, what you have, will have him do. And David wanted to honor God. Near the end of David's life, uh, David is actually engaged in worship. He's worshiping God. And he, uh, he writes these words. He speaks these words. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. David has a huge view of God. He says, wealth and honor come from you. David knows what this position that he occupies in Israel entirely comes from God. He says, you are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt 
and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. David's life was about giving God glory and giving him honor. David knew that his life, his successes, uh, his survival, his kingdom, his salvation, all of it totally, totally, totally depended on this God. And so David did life, every bit of it. The ups and downs, the good, the bad, the victories, the defeats, all of it, trying to honor God. And that's exactly actually right where David's story begins when we first meet David. You all know the story of David's battle with Goliath. I mean, it's, the, it's the, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. In fact, today when we talk about, you know, facing a huge challenge, we talk about it being a Goliath. It's like David taking on Goliath. I mean, that's, everybody knows that analogy. Uh, in that story, we see David just kind of going through life a day at a time, nothing special, taking things as they come. He's been a shepherd. That's what he does. That's his identity. That's his job. But on this particular day, his dad sends him to deliver some food to his older brothers who are with King Saul fighting the Philistines. And so David shows up with the food, bread and cheese. Suddenly he finds himself in a situation where he hears a, a Philistine soldier a giant of a soldier, nine feet tall, this guy. And uh, this soldier is mocking God and mocking the armies of God. And David's curiosity is peaked. He starts asking questions around this. In the process, he discovers this has been going on for 40 days. Every day out comes this giant and the giant is saying, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. This day, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And we find out that on hearing this, it says that on hearing the Philistines words, Saul and the other and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. That's the great army of God right there, dismayed and terrified, <laughs> dismayed and terrified. And David asks a few questions and he finds out no one is willing to fight this giant. And understand to David, this really all boils down to just an honor issue. I really believe that the, the battle is the Lord's battle. Why isn't somebody fighting this giant? David finds out that King Saul is looking for volunteers. And before you know it, David is volunteering to do battle with a nine-foot exterminator. And David is a young, young man. Uh, but understand, too, this exterminator that he's volunteering to fight has been mocking God and mocking God's army for 40 days. David has made that very clear. He's come to understand that very clearly. And David figures it is time to honor God. And King Saul accepts David's offer to go and fight Goliath. He tries to get David to wear his armor. And I suspect part of what's behind that whole deal, that whole deal is it's just going to look better for Saul. I mean, you know, if you're sending somebody out to fight the giant, it would be good for him to have a decent set of armor. Saul was apparently maybe the only one with that. And so here, David, wear this. You won't look foolish when you go out there. And maybe they won't be able to see that we're sending a child out to fight the giant. But you know the story. Things don't fit. David declines. And he goes and he picks out five smooth stones from the stream. You know why he chooses five stones, right? This is significant. 
Yeah, it's in case he misses. I mean, Dad Gummit, he's going out to fight a giant, and he's thinking, I might miss him. <laughs> and this may not go well. So he's got five stones. He probably figures five's all. If I can get off five stones, that'll be it. If it takes more than that, I'm probably dead, you know. But you can just picture this giant, probably not too quick, you know. Giants aren't too quick. David's young, strapping. He can run. He's probably thinking, I'm just going to run. I'm going to keep running from him, try to keep my distance. I need five stones. And he's got a stick with him, a staff as well, that I imagine he was pretty good at fighting with. And when he gets out on the battlefield, you know, you know, Goliath begins to mock him for good reason. I mean, David's not wearing any armor. He's got a stick. He's got a sling. And Goliath, uh, of course, has armor, everything, helmet, you know, greaves, you know, the shin, the, the whole deal whole set of armor, nine feet tall. He's got a sword, he's got a spear, he's got a javelin. He's even got a shield bearer, which means somebody goes out in front of him carrying his shield. He's got a bit of an entourage there. And so he marches out, he's standing there, he's hurling uh, these, uh, these defiant insults at the armies of God and out comes David. And Goliath's response to that is, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He's referring to David's staff. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Goliath is totally confident he's got this. This is not going to be much of a battle. And finally, the Israelites have sent somebody out to fight him because nobody would up to this point. 40 days, 40 days, a month, over a month. Now, surprisingly, when David goes out there, he's not taking this guff. And this is a bit surprising to me. David fires right back at Goliath. This is what David says. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. That's Yahweh Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, he reminds him. Kind of puts that in his face. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. He doesn't even have anything to cut off Goliath's head with, but I will cut off your head. I guess there's dull rock. I'm not sure. Today, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. You see how it's about honor for David? He wants the whole world to know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands, he says. This is an arrogance on David's part. This is confidence in God. For David, the battle is the Lord's. This Philistine uh, is mocking the wrong God, the way David reads it. He is daring God to do something. He is defying God. And nobody was willing to do anything about it. For David, you see, this is an honor issue and a challenge that could not go on being ignored. Not because David was any great soldier. Not because David was greatly gifted, but simply because God is great and deserves better. And he couldn't stand around and let God be mocked. He knew that God deserved greater honor than that. And so for David, the question of the moment was who will honor God? And since no one, no one in Saul's army would, 
David did. Even though he wasn't a soldier, even though I presume he had no formal training, had no sword, had no spear, had no, no armor, he had some rocks and he had a stick, but he simply wasn't going to stand by and let God, his God, be dishonored. Now, interestingly, this is kind of a hindsight observation, of course. Uh, would anybody know who David is today if there hadn't been a Goliath in David's life? I mean, David would have become king. Samuel's already anointed him. So the day would come when Saul would be dead and David would become king. And his name would have been right up there, right alongside others like Nadab and Basha and Elah and Zimri and Abijah and Asa and Ahijah. But what do you know about any of those guys? Nothing, right? You know nothing about those guys. See, the point is the big moment in David's life, and this is a big deal. This is a big giant. There's a big stage. This is a big moment of truth. And there's no making light of that. David, what David does here is very heroic, something nobody else was willing to do. So this event right here, understand, launches David into national stardom. You could say that Goliath makes David famous because from this moment on, everybody knows David's name. And you could say that this all happens because David cares about the honor of God. Now think for a moment. What would have happened if David had handled this opportunity in a different way? What would have happened if David had taken a, a path of less resistance? Maybe not least, but less, you know? If he had avoided the whole conflict, after all, nobody expected him to do anything there that day. He was just an errand boy. He was delivering some bread and cheese, some food for his older brothers. What would have happened if he had just loaded up the wagon, gone home and cared for the sheep? I'll tell you what I think. I think, honestly, we'd say, David who? Uh, he'd just have been another king in Israel whose name we don't remember. And probably too, there would never have been so many of the Psalms that we read in the book of Psalms. There would have been perhaps no great conquest of the land that was still waiting to happen. There would have been no great golden age in the history of Israel. Perhaps no temple plans would have been prepared. I mean, just my opinion, but I don't think David had any idea of the importance of the decision that he made that day. It was a decision in his mind just to honor God and go fight Goliath, you know. I mean, he was just coming to deliver again some bread and cheese. But in the process, he was presented with a challenge. Who will honor God? That's the challenge. And David decided he would. And it was a risky decision. No doubt about it, humanly speaking, no doubt about it. But he does what he thinks God would have him do. And he trusts God because how else is he going to defeat this giant? He steps out in faith and the whole course of his life and the history of Israel, and you could even say the church, are dramatically altered because David decides to honor God in this situation. And I would say, guys, when you face battles... When you face challenges with various size giants, 
marriage battles, you know, you're going to hang in there. Are you going to commit? Are you going to see to it that things get better? Maybe it's counseling or whatever, you know, challenges, marriage challenges, work battles. You know, will you do the right thing or will you do something they're asking you to do that you're pretty sure is not the right thing? Parenting battles, just hanging in there, being faithful, praying for the children. Keep loving on them, keep forgiving. Spiritual battles, financial battles, any battle, big or small. You see, in every battle, you have a decision to make. Will I honor God? Will I do what pleases him? Or will I just do what I want to do? Will I just do what's easiest for me? Who will honor God? And I think, dads, what God wants from us most is for us to drill down to that place where we can and will consistently say, I will honor God. I think... What God wants from us most is that fundamental commitment, knowing we don't get it right all the time. Sometimes we really blow it. But will we say, I will honor God? I believe our consistent attempts to honor God will have far-reaching consequences, maybe even consequences we don't get to see because there are always spectators, you know, I mean, gosh, wives, children, relatives, coworkers, friends, people watching, people we don't even know they're watching, but they look to see what we will do. You know, will we honor him? Will our life be about trusting him? Will we stay faithful to him, do what's right, keep our promises? Will we honor God? You know, that's really the one big question for all of us, men, women, all of us, isn't it? I mean, every day we face that question, will I honor God? We face that question in our homes, in our places of business, in our private lives. And you know what? Every day we answer it one way or the other. And the answers we give to that question will determine, I think, the entire course and direction of our lives and will certainly impact those who are watching us from the sidelines. David's attempt to honor God that day and to take on a giant, I mean, it forever changed his life and the lives of those around him. But at the time, I doubt that he knew the impact of the decision he was making. In that particular moment, you know, because he had drilled down before that, In that particular moment, he was just saying, you know, I'm going to honor God. Nobody else is going to do it. I'm going to honor God. And I'm pretty sure all of us would like to handle all of the giants that come into our lives similarly, the same way David handled his. But I imagine, too, you might be wondering how this young shepherd boy mustered enough courage and faith to lay it all on the line and face a a nine-foot exterminator. Pretty good question, right? How did he do that? That's a big deal. And you may be sitting there this morning thinking, you know, David's story, it's great. I've heard it before. David the giant killer, yay, you know. 
But I don't have that kind of story. And I don't have that kind of faith. How did David get there? What was his secret? How did he learn to honor God in moments like that? Huge moments, lots of people watching. You know, it's interesting. David actually tells us. Uh, David says this. Uh, we read that Saul replied, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. And he has been a fighting man from his youth. By the way, Saul is exactly right. Let that sink in. Saul is exactly right. David, you are not able to do this. But David said to Saul, you know, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. That's what I do. I'm a shepherd. I watch sheep. And he's been, uh, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. Why? Because that's what good shepherds do. Good shepherds don't go, whoop, another one down. Dang. <laughs> I went after it, he says. And when it turned on me, he says, this is really, I seized it by its hair. Okay. Mm -hmm. Struck it and killed it. Wow. He was committed. <laughs> Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied, and that because is huge, because he has defied the armies of the living God. It's an honor issue, you see. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so I love this response. So Saul says, okay, okay, go and the Lord be with you. <laughs> Nobody else wants to take on this job. You go ahead, David. Yeah. Do you see David's secret in all this? David had been practicing honoring God by being a good shepherd. And when some lion or bear came and took the sheep, you know, David did something about it. I hope you see that giant killing faith doesn't descend from a cloud. It doesn't arrive in the mail. It doesn't even come from a single prayer being prayed. It actually comes from practice. Practice. Just every day in the trenches, practice. Well, what does that look like? Oh, it's really fancy in the trenches. You know, it's just setting certain priorities in our lives. And we say, you know what? This is what my life's going to be about. This is going to be a rhythm in my life. This is going to always matter in my life. Why? Because it honors God. It just honors God. And that's why we are always harping around here about reaching up, worshiping God, having patterns in your life, rhythms in your life about worshiping God, whether it's here together or whether it's a home alone. Or reaching in, developing community with others, letting them influence you and you influence them and serving others in the name of this great God. You see, giant killing faith develops slowly and steadily with practice. 
Small daily, weekly commitments, making God a practical priority in our lives. When we do this, when we honor him in small things and small decisions, when nobody's looking and nobody's cheering, you know, we read, we pray, we make worship a priority, we honor him with our time, our talent, our treasures, we make lots of little choices to honor him day in, day out. When we do that, we learn over time, you know what? God can be trusted. He is trustworthy. He will take care of me. He can use me. Giant killing faith grows in those seemingly insignificant moments of life where we just honor him. And we just trust him. And we just obey him, no matter the cost. You know, picture David out there watching sheep on a hillside somewhere, right? Picture Ireland, nice green hills. (laughs) Lion comes along and steals the sheep, a sheep. I'm guessing David had a dialogue with God. I'm guessing his very first instinct was a, whoa, I'm going after the lion. Oh, goody. No, I'm guessing he's talking to God. Okay, God, I am the shepherd. I am in charge. One of the sheep are gone. Okay, he hears from God. I'm going after the lion. You're going with me, right, God? You know, he wasn't entirely sure how this was going to turn out. And I'm guessing he moved into that fearfully, cautiously, you know, as wisely as he could. He's going after a lion. He is trusting God. And David discovers along the way that what God prompts him to do, which would always be doing the right thing, you know, God empowers him to do. You know, when you decide to honor God, well, I'm a shepherd, what would honor God? Do the job well. What does that look like? Well, rescuing sheep out of the jaws of a lion, I guess. And when he does that, God goes with him and so does the power of God. That's a very important lesson to learn. That is a critical lesson to learn. And David had learned that lesson by the time he got to Goliath, you see. He's already learned that when he seeks the honor of God, God is with him. When he seeks the honor of God, God gives him power. When he seeks the honor of God, God is sufficient in any circumstances, and the power of God is present. Uh, Question. And I'll ask the men, women, everybody, you know, have you learned that yet? Have you discovered that yet? You know, the only way that you can is if you are stepping out in faith in the small details of your life a day at a time. That's how you learn that. You follow God's lead in the small stuff. You seek God's honor in the small stuff, daily, weekly, monthly. And I'll, you know, say that to dads. Dads, I think that's what God wants from us, nothing less than that. Now, we've been talking about David, you know, this has been all about David and David trusting God and David seeing God work. You you do understand, of course, David's commitment to honor God is just a very, very dim reflection of the commitment that Jesus had to honor God. You get that, right? I mean, David faced a battle with a a giant. It was an uncertain outcome, Um, but God had helped David in the past. He had a reasonable expectation to think God was going to be with him here as he sought the honor of God. Think about Jesus for a minute. When Jesus committed to honoring the Father, what that meant for Jesus was certain death. 
Not maybe uh, this won't happen. No, it meant certain death. It meant separation from his father, his heavenly father, the father he had never been separated from ever, not for an instant. It meant bearing the weight of sin, your sin and my sin on his shoulders. He had never had that kind of association with sin before. And Jesus went right ahead and honored the father. He did that for you and for me. It's remarkable. And when he did that, the greatest victory ever imagined, ever conceived, the greatest victory ever was achieved simply because Jesus sought to honor the Father. Jesus opened the way for David. And he opens the way for you and for me to have our sins forgiven and to know God and to love God and be loved by God and to do life with God so that we can grow up like David did, like Jesus was. And I hope you do see too that when Jesus says to us, come follow me, and by the way, he does say that to you and to me, come follow me. There's no equivocation about this. If you wanna call yourself a Christian, You have to get your butt out of the seat and you have to follow him. And uh, when Jesus said, come follow me, it was just another way of asking the question, who will honor God? Because when you follow Jesus, you're honoring God. And so I would just say to you, if, if that is what you want to do. I love these moments that pastors get to create where you don't give people any choice really, but um, we do it anyhow. If you want to answer that question, you know, who will follow God by saying I will, then get your butt up out of the seat and stand with me. (laughs) And let's pray. Father, You're a good, good father. You sent your own son. You you concocted a plan with him that was all about sacrificing him so that we would not have to be sacrificed. And God, we just stand before you right now and we admit that all too often our lives are about our honor and not yours. We confess that. But we look at guys like David or we look at Jesus and we realize that the very thing that matters most in the world is your honor. It's your glory. It's us living for you in ways that bring you honor and bring you glory. And the greatest good always comes from that path, those decisions. So as we stand here, God, we just confess our inadequacy. We confess that we don't get this right very often, but God, we also at the same time ask you, beseech you to work in us, to fill us with your spirit, to give us the daily resolve in the details of our lives to honor you. And we will trust you with the results of that, Lord. We thank you for this time together. May you be glorified. May you be honored. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.